The views expressed in this podcast are those of individuals and do not reflect those of the U.S. government, the Peace Corps, or the government of Panama. Hello, my name is Dan Lipkowitz and welcome to the Peace Corps Panama Files. In this podcast miniseries, each week I will be interviewing a different volunteer who is finishing up their Peace Corps service in Panama. We'll talk about where they come from, what led them to join the Peace Corps, and with each guest I'll tackle a different fundamental aspect of serving as a volunteer in Panama. We'll delve into what has been enlightening, difficult, and downright strange as they've navigated the cultural and professional journey of serving as a volunteer over the past two years. This week, I was elated to have Julia Sullivan stop by. Julia described her community of Sirisito Arriba and the strange, arbitrary development that has recently occurred in our region. We then discussed Julia's journey from Northampton, Massachusetts to Washington, D.C., where she attended college, and spoke about what common ground she has found with her friends from college that are also serving as volunteers in other countries. Julia not only offered some illuminating ruminations on how her sense of service connects with a recognition of privilege, but also dispelled the romantic view of a Peace Corps lifestyle, and rather explained the significance that simplicity can provide as a means of situating and grounding oneself. One particular thing about Julia is her wonderful aptitude for connecting with volunteers and Panamanians alike. The bonds of friendship she creates are resonant and lasting, reminding one of familial ties. So naturally in our conversation, we explored how growing up in Northampton, surrounded by various family members, and being often reminded of her family's deep history there, gave her unique insight into the culture of a rural Panamanian village, where many families are well-established and concentrated within a small community. It was an absolute pleasure to dissect how family, attentiveness, and a sense of home translate between Panama and the United States. in Siberia during like the when the Soviet Union was like iron fist cracking down on people mm-hmm. when people were in the gulags in Siberia they would find frozen prehistoric animals like woolly mammoths and like raccoons and prehistoric squirrels and oh, eat them holy cow because they were preserved well enough oh my god so like thousand year old meats and they were just like feasting on them I didn't think that was possible but anyway okay <laughs> Ready. I'm joined here today by a dear, dear friend and a, a wonderful volunteer, uh, Miss Julia Sullivan. Julia, thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the Peace Corps Panel Files. Thanks for having me, Dan. Huh? I'm excited to be here. Cool. Okay, so start off the podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about? Uh, your community here in Panama. What's it called? Uh, where is it? Give us a little description about the what's it like. Yeah. Right. So I'm not too far from here, just up the road. It's like a 20-minute hike pieced together with a 20-minute Shiva ride or so mm-hmm. um, in a community called Sirisito Arriba. So it's about, what is it, about a thousand people that live there, um, give or take. And it is an agricultural community, so primarily coffee farmers. That's how most people make their livelihood. Um, and let's see. Yeah, so we're in the Panama Canal watershed out here. My community is a few hours outside the city, depending on the day. And um, yeah, I, it's at a, kind of an interesting point in its development right now. I feel like the last decade, it's, it's changed a lot, pretty dramatically. Um, and so a good portion of the community now has a paved road and electricity and um, some of those amenities, and then a large part of the community still does not. So there's some interesting dynamics 
there um, kind of internally. Yeah. yeah. I think that that's also something that's very recognizable in a lot of the Peace Corps volunteer communities here. I know that like we've discussed uh, on numerous occasions that there's kind of like a haphazard sort of development that mm-hmm. goes on here, especially in our communities. Because Panama has ex- has very, very serious economic inequality. Yeah. And a lot of that wealth is concentrated is concentrated in the city. And then on those boundaries, the the development is arri- is arriving not necessarily with it does at least it doesn't seem to me that it's arising with any certain order. So we'll have sporadic. Yeah, it's yeah. super sporadic and also super random what sort of development arrives. Right. So uh, like for example, we have our friend Nick who lives in a community that doesn't have electricity. But using solar panels, the entire community has Wi-Fi. Yeah. <laughs> and then some communities, like mine, have electricity, but usually don't have running water for a lot of the community. Mm-hmm. And then there are also communities that are kind of split down the middle, like yours, which part of the community has water and electricity, and then there are other sectors of your community which really lack those amenities. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's kind of like a little microcosm of kind of various phases of development. It's, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so now you're here in City Cito. You're doing great work. But where do you come from back in the United States? What is, where is home and what is home like? All right. Well, I'm from Northampton, Massachusetts, um, which is a small city a couple hours outside of Boston in Western Mass. Um, I, let's see, I'm the oldest of three children, so I have a younger sister and brother, um, and yeah, I was born there, I grew up there, spent 18 or 17 years there before heading off to college. Um, Where'd you go to school? I went to school in D.C., so American University, Cool. Um, and I studied environmental studies and international development, which has fed nicely into this experience. Yeah, I imagine so. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and I didn't have too much time... After that, before joining the Peace Corps, so I stuck around in D.C. for a little bit um, and then popped home for like six months before finding myself in Panama. Yeah. I know you have a, you have a pretty interesting situation back home, which we'll, we'll, we'll delve into in a little bit. Um, but do you think that the kind of your major in, in college, is that what initially drew you towards the Peace Corps? Or what kind of piqued your interest? Uh, when did you first hear about the Peace Corps? Um, Peace Corps was something that was always kind of in the back of my mind. My college and my program, the International Studies Program at my school, produced a lot of Peace Corps volunteers. Mm-hmm. So I have friends and acquaintances from college that are now all over the world um, with Peace Corps, which is pretty cool to have been able to, to follow a lot of them. Um, but I was never the kind of person that, that always knew I wanted to be a volunteer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I, towards the end of college, I was as I began to kind of think about my next steps and where I wanted to go and where I wanted to be doing. Um, I, I didn't have the opportunity to study abroad in college. I, I was on the cross-country and track teams there, which um, was limiting in a lot of ways, although a very positive experience for me um, definitely didn't allow me to do um, some of those more kind of adventurous things that I would have liked to. Mm-hmm. Um, so I knew that graduating from college, I wanted to live abroad. I wanted to work, and preferably in like a service-oriented way. Um, 
And the more I kind of looked into the options that exist out there, um, the more I realized that it really had to be for a significant period of time. I didn't want to just kind of skin the surface of something. I really wanted to delve into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of my best friends at the time, she is one of those people that always knew she wanted to be a volunteer. And she was kind of in the process of applying. And I kind of realized, why am I not doing this? This is kind of kind of fit the bill in terms of what I was looking for. Um, and yeah, I thought it would be a rewarding but challenging experience in terms of acquiring a new language and delving into something totally culturally different. And yeah. And you mentioned that you have a lot of a lot of friends from college that have also served as volunteers in different countries. And the Peace Corps experience have notorious for being different for each individual. Yeah. But I know that you've visited a friend in Peru. I did. And you've also talked to your friends. That were in Pacific Island. That yeah. were in Pacific Islands, right? Vanuatu. What sort of has there been any sort of similarity that you found when discussing your Peace Corps experience with them? And if so, what has that been? Um, I think it seems to me that the, the challenges that one encounters related to work as a Peace Corps volunteer mm-hmm. um, are are very similar across different posts. Um, in talking to my friend from Peru, and I, and I did visit her, our communities are incredibly different. Her community is four times as big as mine, um, way up in the mountains of Peru. It's beautiful. Um, and I think because of that, she just has very different kind of community dynamics that she's working with. But I think um, a lot of the challenges that we encounter as volunteers in the work that we do um, are similar in different countries, just whether they be with institutional support or motivation in the community or resources and things like that. Um, I feel like that's kind of common ground for a lot of volunteers. Yeah, kind of the basic, uh, like, tenets of a, of a community seem to transcend even those, those strange cultural barriers. Yeah. It seems to me. Yeah. Um, and also, we don't have to, like, dwell on this too deeply, but you mentioned that you, you were pretty confident you wanted to apply yourself to a work a type of work that allowed you to to accomplish service. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would was that just something that you naturally knew, or or what made you think like, oh, I want to essentially add I want to work in a service oriented fashion mm-hmm. rather than I mean, you're you're very smart, you're very like determined. I could perfectly imagine you going and working anywhere and being very successful without moving to a uh, developing country and working in kind of obscurity for mm-hmm. two years. So, <laughs> <laughs> not not that, I'm, that I mean, I'm, that's giving a like a very negative impression of no. Peace Corps, which I'm not trying to do, but I'm just saying like there is that element of sacrifice yeah, for in, sure. in Peace Corps. And, what well, no, That's my, what well, no, My host dad is passing by holding a machete in his hand. Um, this some work? Yeah. Coming back from work, I think. It's, it's hot. It is. It's, it's brutal. Um, but yeah, anyway, there is that element of sacrifice, mm. which, to be pretty blunt, isn't for everyone, isn't for everyone, and also isn't something that's prioritized by everyone. So right. why why did you think that that was something important to do? Um, I think, I feel like it was honestly for more selfish reasons than one would assume I think I, I was interested in, in the perspective I think that that kind of work would allow me to to gain um, and I think just being being in a country that 
um, or an area that was less developed um, and kind of the things that I would encounter there with regards to, I don't know, just general standard of living and, and the challenges of, of work and general challenges of life there. Um, I was interested in exploring that dynamic because I feel like I was very fortunate in my upbringing and um, I, for that reason, I think I felt drawn to um, the kind of work that would give me the opportunity to, to do some good if, if it were possible. Yeah. I, yeah, I think that that, I mean, that completely resonates with me. Mm -hmm. The idea of not only like where we come from in within our own personal lives, but also just as Americans, it's, yeah. we live a very privileged life. Absolutely. And there's that there's that term of uh, noblesse oblige. I can't speak French, but that's <laughs> a term that I learned, which is kind of like the, yeah, yeah. it sounds it sounds mellifluous, but who knows? Um, uh, but that idea of coming from a higher station and feeling a responsibility to give back, um, and I don't know if that like accurately characterizes it, but definitely. There's a sentiment of wanting to understand, like other people, and through that, use what privilege and power that you have. Yeah, absolutely. To come back. And also, I think uh, through speaking with other volunteers, uh, a lot of people have initially coming down here kind of seem to have frustration with the simplicity. Of, of the life that they encounter down here. Mm -hmm. And they're kind of expecting to be blown away by like, the mysteries of the, of the jungle. Or, yeah, for two years. Exactly, yeah. and that's, that's not the way that it goes. Yeah. And I think that despite that, there is kind of a deeper, maybe even a more profound understanding than you would from being enchanted from doing these like daily tasks. And yeah, absolutely. I, I recently learned that like mnemon the the word mnemonic like mm -hmm. mnemonic devices for for memory mm -hmm. is which is like learning through repetition is what it is it's like mnemonic devices comes from the root of that is meaningfulness which i thought was like that definitely applies to my life down yeah. here yeah where it's like that like harvesting yucca every day yeah or like cleaning monte with a with a machete every day like that poco a poco little by little like leads you to have kind of like a deeper understanding and a deeper like a deeper cultural connection with these people mm -hmm. as well. It's an appreciation for it too. Yeah. When you go through like the gritty daily activities that that are not, I feel like it's so easy to romanticize Peace Corps when you're, especially in your beginning. Um, but yeah, to be on the other end of that now, I think that's definitely absolutely true. And I yeah, it's definitely like a hump because like when you come in, mm -hmm. you you're definitely locked into that romanticized view. And then you, you do encounter those inevitable frustrations. And it seems like now coming out on the, on the other side, yeah. we have like a, a broader perspective on it. <laughs> I hope so. Without sounding too like superior in our... In our no, I, just, I think it's a really good like grounding experience also. Oh, absolutely. Like yeah. I think the simplicity of it, as you mentioned, is to have days that are so unstructured in a lot of ways, which is so different from at least my routine back in the States. And um, I think it's really good to, to kind of challenge yourself to embrace that, like the uncertainty of each day and just the openness of it. And For sure. Yeah. Absolutely. So you're, so one of your best friends applied to Peace Corps mm -hmm. and then you start seriously considering it. Um, was there any point in that application process or that like searching process that really... Uh, kind of pushed you over the edge and made you decide this is something that 
I really want to do because like we were talking about it is ultimately a, a pretty large sacrifice. Yeah. Um, I think to be honest, so I stuck around, I applied in the spring of my senior year of college. Um, and then as we all know, the application process now supposedly is, is much improved, but back then it's a lot more streamlined now and people can choose what countries they yeah. want to go to. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I had, I had applied and, um, I had interviewed and I'd been accepted to a community environmental conservation program, but I did not have any idea of where. Um, and people kind of dragged their feet and didn't tell me where for several months. But at the time, so the following summer after graduating, I was working um, at an environmental nonprofit in D.C. I had a summer internship there. And it was a good experience. I liked the work. It was an organization that um, I feel good about. Um, and at the end of the summer, they offered me a job to stay on. And... I honestly think that that was kind of the moment it, like, scared me almost. It was a crossroads for sure, for right? For sure, yeah. <laughs> I was, like, 21, and I had, I, I mean, I didn't really have any plans, and um, I had this kind of abstract idea of maybe doing Peace Corps, and the idea of sailing into a job, like, that kind of scared me, I think. Or I was just, I was really wary of doing the comfortable thing, kind of, for lack of a, a better option, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And I and I didn't want to just kind of get swept along and then find myself five years down the line, like, still working in that office or or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that definitely makes sense. And I think there's also kind of that, uh, even, you might characterize as, like, a sense of adventure mm-hmm. that, that I've definitely, like, seen in you. Like, you, you're always going off doing really interesting things. I've gone, we've gone on numerous, like, yeah. hikes together, mini yeah. adventures, which have been really awesome. Yeah. Um. But that question of, like, what if and also what else is out there. Yeah. And, and exploration, definitely. Uh, yeah, I can imagine that being a large driving force. Yeah, for sure. Um, so you come down here. Your, your Spanish was, all, was, was pretty good coming down here. Um, but the, the, the cultural aspect being, like, thrown to a, a small community, how did that... Uh, that experience kind of working in DC, working in like an internship with like a larger organization, nonprofit, mm-hmm. did that translate at all? Or was it just a completely new ballgame? Like the work experience? Of- the work experience or were there any kind of like, uh, yeah, I guess like the work experience also kind of like the, the issues you were dealing with. Okay. I guess, yeah, with, with regards to that job in particular, it was... I enjoyed my coworkers, and it was um, it was a good kind of three month stint doing work that felt meaningful to me. But it was it was very impersonal, um, I think, compared to the nature of the work that we do here. Mm-hmm. And so we spend you know several months in training when we get to our post in Peace Corps, talking about ways we integrate in our community and how all those strategies will allow us to be effective um, work wise from a work standpoint. Yeah. And, but it's so personal and so much of your work depends on your relationships with people and that inevitably comes first. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was definitely very different. Um, just kind of making those connections and building all of those relationships before I even thought about um, trying to get started on the project or, or making something happen. Yeah. And that's a perfect segue into you come from a pretty uh, close knit personal background uh, your town in Massachusetts, your family is pretty well-established there. Yeah. Maybe, maybe 
it's like pretty prominent, pretty well known, right? Uh, I guess, yeah. Can you, can you give us a little a little background on what your family situation is there? Yeah, sure. Um, so, so my hometown it's not actually that small. It's like thirty five thousand people, I think, that live there. But mm-hmm. it definitely has a very kind of small small town New Englandy feel about mm-hmm. it. Um, and both sides of my family, so my mom's side and my dad's side, both go back several generations there. Um, my, my parents are both one of five, so I have lots of aunts and uncles, lots of cousins. That have also, for the most part, stuck around in that community, right? In Honestly, yeah, with a couple of exceptions. I mean, those that don't live there live in Boston, so we're, it's, I have a big family, and we're pretty much confined to, I think we're entirely confined to the state of Massachusetts, which I think is pretty wild these days. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so my parents were high school sweethearts. Um, let's see. I live, my family lives in the house that my grandfather grew up in. <laughs> um, and I don't know, I went to the same high school as my grandparents. In, in elementary and middle school, I often had the experience of having the same teachers that my parents had had 25 years previously. Wow. And, um, it's definitely like an anomaly in American culture to experience that these days, I feel. I, at this point, I recognize that, but I, I was oblivious to that fact for a long time, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. And you've mentioned that even now walking through, like, your hometown, people will recognize you as your parents' daughter or, like, yeah. your aunt or uncle's niece or, or even, like, the grandchild of your grandparents. I've had that experience multiple times. And I think the craziest time was back in, I think it was middle school or early high school, one of my final Halloween years. Um, final I was, Halloween years. Final yes. Halloween years. I, in, like, the wholesome Halloween sense. Yeah, oh, no, yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> I think that there's, like... Halloween goes through its evolution of what yeah. Halloween means. So we're talking, <laughs> like, we're talking like trick-or-treating. We're right? talking have like a pillowcase full of Snickers. Yes, absolutely. Halloween. Yeah, okay, I gotcha. But I was dressed as a ninja. It was it was like, I threw this costume together like pretty last minute, and I thankfully had a lot of black clothing that I could just pull from. And so... Go through a goth phase? I didn't. I realized how that sounded when it came out. I definitely never had a goth phase. I was very upset at that time (laughs) in my life. It's a dark period for me. I was a very emotionally fraught (laughs) 11-year-old. No, but I was was dressed as a ninja, and all you could could see of me were my eyes. Mm -hmm. And I remember going to house and ringing the doorbell with my group of friends, and the woman answered the door, and she looked at my eyes and said, You're a Sullivan. And I was like blown away because I she was a stranger to me. Yeah. I don't know that I don't know that she'd ever met me, but she recognized my family by my eyes. Mm-hmm. And it was yeah. I often had the experience of people recognize me, or or like noting that I was the daughter of Mark and Robbie, and who they went to high school with, or or whatever far back connection. Yeah. No, that's pretty spectacular. Yeah. Pretty bizarre. <laughs> um. So you come from this like really close knit. Mm-hmm. Uh, hometown that has it has a hometown feel to it already and then your family is definitely uh, pretty prominent there mm-hmm. and then you go off to DC which is nothing like that nope whatsoever yeah uh, kind of like a, a giant pool of anonymity mm-hmm. uh, unless you happen to be a senator or a president there it's <laughs> <laughs> um, <Well>, not <laughs> yeah which were, were you also just, like, moonlighting as a senator while you were in college? Like, I, I mean, I don't want to get into that, but okay. it's just kind of a side gig. Uh, yeah, side gig. Yeah. Whatever. Um, and now you are in Panama, and you're in a community that is pretty close-knit and has a lot of, like, well-established families here that uh, trace members of the family back multiple generations. 
very similar to your situation in Massachusetts. And also, a lot of these families take a lot of pride in these, uh, in these communities that they live in because many, many times their families were the founding families in these communities. A lot of these communities are, are not so old. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was thinking about, about two or three weeks ago, I went out to a matanza, which for listeners... Uh, is it directly translates to slaughter. A killing. <laughs> a, a killing. I went to a killing. Um, but it's where a community will slaughter um, a cow or several cows and invite uh, surrounding communities out to have kind of a daytime barbecue yeah. party where you eat... Smoked meat. Yeah, you eat smoked meat. There are games and dancing and music. Yeah. Um, but I went out to... Uh, a community called Pueblo Nuevo, which I'd never heard of before, but that's not so unusual for me. There are lots of communities here that I've never heard of. Uh, But it translates to new town. Uh, And when we got out there, a guy was explaining that the town was founded nine years ago. Wow. Which, up until this point, I I recognize that there is still a certain sparseness to this land, but I didn't recognize that people were still... Found, finding new communities, yeah. uh, and apparently that's still a thing. Um, but you get planted in this community that's mm-hmm. super tight knit, has these well established families. Did that resonate when you first showed up? Did that resonate at all to your experience back home? And now that you've established yourself within City Cito as well, does it? Do you feel kind of any sort of? Uh, do you feel kind of any? Is there? Is it analogous in any way, I guess, to your experience back home? First, simply from, like, a, a visual standpoint. Like, mm-hmm. Does it feel similar? I guess it does in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, well, I remember, so in training we talk a lot about kind of some of the cultural differences we're going to encounter. And in doing so, focus a lot on families and family dynamics and stuff. And I remember spending a lot of time talking about how big Panamanian families are and how Oftentimes, extended family members live in the same house, and they're always kind of coming in and out, and mm-hmm. it's just a very family-oriented society. Um, but arriving to Cito, that all felt kind of natural to me, I think. Um, I mean, I didn't... It wasn't... My family situation back home is not quite to that extreme. But yeah. I... You know, my aunt used to live across the street from me, and I'd see my grandparents yeah. almost weekly or, or that kind of thing. And so I guess that was just one less thing that... I had to adapt to, or it didn't, it didn't strike me as overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of that constant family presence. Um, I know that also a lot of times they, they kind of, during our training, try and warn us about invasions of, they'll say that privacy won't be the same yeah. because <laughs> you'll be surrounded by large families that won't culturally just won't recognize the same kind of boundaries that, that we often have in the United States. Right. Um, but I, I don't know. I feel like it, if, to me, it was, like, refreshing. I also didn't have any, like, super intense invasions of privacy. But was, did, did I guess back, back home, did that help you at all with that experience? Or, or were you, back home, did you still have the basic cultural norms of privacy <laughs> in your home? Um, definitely, like, within the home, basic mm-hmm. boundaries of privacy were respected. Yeah. Um, but I think in terms of just being around 
a lot of people, a lot of family members simultaneously. That was something that I that I grew up with, you know, cousins that were older, younger than me. I fall like pretty squarely in the middle on both sides. So, and just being an older sibling also, I think on the weekends with my homestay family, when um, their grandchildren will come to visit or um, extended family, and it was just kind of this like rush and arrival of so many people that um, in a way was kind of familiar. Yeah. 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 Um, and I guess growing, you said that you, you grew up, growing up in that, with your large extended family, always close by, it didn't feel unnatural to you. And you didn't like really recognize it as that unique until later on in your life. Yeah. Having that feeling of being able to kind of navigate that, that very large, but very, uh, the very intense network of people that coming naturally to you. Have you applied that all to kind of your your way of living in your community and also kind of how you apply yourself in your work? Especially because, like you said, ultimately personal connections are the foundation of our projects here and are the mm-hmm. foundation of our work. Um, I think it's definitely just given me um, kind of a deeper understanding and appreciation for the family dynamics here. Um, I think it can be easy to almost view being surrounded by your family, um, maybe even by our generation as, as kind of, I don't want to say lame, but as, as kind of, (laughs) do you know what I mean though? No, definitely. There's, there's like that, especially like as a teenager and in your early twenties, you're like, oh, like my, I'm not hanging out with my parents. I'm going to go steal a convertible with my friends. (laughs) I don't know what you were doing. At that age, but wild New Jersey lifestyle, <laughs> barely made it into the Peace Corps. Oh God, no. <laughs> no, but I think I think I definitely have an appreciation for um, what it means to grow up, kind of deeply rooted in a in a place and in a community. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's enhanced my my appreciation for just the dynamics of CDC too and the kind of the family scene there. Yeah. Um, and that's something that, like, I don't know, that that seems particularly meaningful to me, and especially from what I've recognized in your work and your community, that idea of being rooted in a community and really investing yourself in a place is something that my, like, I love my hometown, but I don't have a real deep, uh, like, that, that sort of emotional commitment to it yeah. in that way. And I think that, the way that I've seen you apply yourself in your work there, it, it, it's pretty evident that you've really applied not just kind of your, your extensive like mental and physical capacities there, but also like a little, like a little bit of your soul into, into that, that community because you understand. It seems to me that you just like intrinsically, you understand the commitment and the meaning that that community has to to those families, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely do feel... Well, thank you, first of all. And I I do feel that way. Um, I think I think our generation, especially also, I think we move around a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And I think generally are less inclined to to kind of settle in one place for, for longer periods of time. And I, and I think this Peace Corps experience is... is such a good way to do that and really delve into a small community, especially, I mean, here in La Bongo with you is a, a great example um, of how immersed you are here. And it's considerably smaller than mine too. Um, but I think 
yeah, I feel really lucky to have also found that in my hometown. Um, and yeah, to know that it'll, it'll always kind of be there to go back to. Yeah, absolutely. Having that home base. Yeah. Um, I also like just a difference between the U.S. and here and something that uh, has been kind of a pleasant surprise. And because our communities are, they differ in size, but in a lot of ways, because we're so close, like, and we're on the same, specifically for this observation, we're on the same electrical line. Yeah. So if yeah. power goes out in your site, it also goes out in my site. Right. Um, and also we use the same cell tower to get service. Mm-hmm. I found it very interesting just observing how when there isn't, pa- be- because there isn't power here a lot of times and because there isn't cell service, cell signal, uh, in a lot of areas, it forces people not to, especially young kids a lot of times, not to focus on their phones yeah. or focus as much on the outside world, which I know they're like the, the benefits and the detriments to like being, uh, isolated and insulated. But, um, there's some, there's something very charming about being cut off from the outside world and thereby focusing your attention on like what's around. Yeah. And I feel like that really has formed a deep bond with, like, between people and their communities. Mm-hmm. Just because they, they're so, without being uh, stereotypical, just like I, people here seem so much more observant to me about what's going on in their community. They know what cars have passed by. They Incredibly know, so, yeah. They know if you ask them about a certain type of tree, they'll be like, oh, like, you go in that way, you, like, go into that part of the woods and they'll just know where all these things are located. Mm-hmm. Which if someone asked me like, where can you find like an Oak tree in Pennington, New Jersey? I would be like, uh, I don't know. Um, they're undistracted. It's, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like that it's kind of like a, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily by their, by their own volition, but they're, it's kind of a technological asceticism where they're, mm-hmm. where they're like cut off from that. And thereby, it creates a certain amount of focus. I don't know. Um, and definitely has, it's, it, from a selfish perspective, it's had that impact on me. I've, I've liked being like cut off a little bit from, from the world in that way. For sure. Yeah. And it's, it's especially apparent on certain nights when the power's been in and out in my community over the past few days. I, they must be working on it along the line somewhere. But um, on the nights when it's, on people kind of keep themselves a little bit more and it's still a relatively new phenomenon I mean electricity arrived to my community just a couple years ago but already when it's there people kind of keep to themselves a little more and might watch tv or do that kind of thing but when it's not they everyone has little candles lit on their porches and people kind of float around and visit each other and have um just these wonderful conversations that are such a joy to listen in on and participate in and um I think is the, what comes more naturally to them because that's always that's how they've interacted with each other always in the past. But absolutely, and I think uh, in my interview with Brenna, I touched a little bit on kind of like the past hour culture. Mm-hmm. But I, if you wouldn't mind, if you'd give like a little description of like what your experience has been past hour in your community, because you live in a pretty in a relatively large community, mm-hmm. uh, especially for this region. But when I've come up to your community, which has been on numerous occasions, you are universally adored uh, by by your gente, by your people. Um, and I think that that's a result of kind of like that past our culture and you really taking advantage of those opportunities to share in those conversations with people. 
So what what exactly has is the pass AR culture? What does that mean to you? And how have you participated in it? Right. To share with our readers, uh, our listeners, our listeners. <laughs> yeah. Um, so pass ARing is, I feel like, a pretty foundational activity, at least in this region and the kind of community that we work in. Mm-hmm. Um, activity that that I personally focused a lot of my energy on early on in my service. Um, mm-hmm. I would like leave my host families in the morning and decide if I should go to the left or the right down the road. Mm-hmm. And just like what houses was I going to hit up that day? Who was I going to introduce myself to? Um, like shoot the shit with? Yeah, you can swear on that. <laughs> okay. Fuck shit. <laughs> <laughs> We're in the okay. same space here. Excellent. Um, and it definitely initially maybe didn't feel that natural, that comfortable, but has become such a such a um, a standard daily activity um, at this point. And so it's basically you just kind of wander around and you pop in on a house and you talk for a while. I feel like I feel like there's passing and then there's purposeful passing. So the more busy I found myself with projects and things like that, I'll often go to someone's house with a particular topic in mind that I want to touch on. But there are still plenty of days where you just visit with people. Absolutely. It's just quality time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I don't know if this has been your experience, but also when I'm doing purposeful passe hiring, like if I need to talk to someone about a project, yeah. still kind of the etiquette of Panamanian culture is you come to their house, you shoot the shit with them, you mm-hmm. talk about something random, or you just talk about what's going on, then you'll go, you have to do that first before you get into the business conversation. For sure. And then even after that, you can't just immediately leave after covering whatever that mm-hmm. business conversation was. You go back into talking about whatever else is going yeah. on. You don't just walk up to their porch, say, real quick, I got a question for you or something like that, and kind of launch into it. It's it's like a committed visit always. When Absolutely. It's when it's done correctly, I think. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's definitely uh, a time commitment and also like uh, it's an exercise in attentiveness as mm-hmm. well. Because you definitely, you know, you there's, I feel like there's a, a kind of cop out type of passe hiring where you can talk about like, oh, these are the, this is how the fruits are different in the United States and Panama, yeah. which is, I'm not, those are, those conversations are very useful. Yeah. Especially when you're first starting out and you're just yeah. trying to introduce yourself to people. Talk about the weather. Yeah. Talk yeah. about the weather, which is like a classic passe conversation, but I found that the most rewarding Passear conversations have been when I've gone into just like weird, mm-hmm. strange conversations. Uh, some of, a lot of the old men around here love ghost stories. And La Bonga, my community here, has like a, a strange cultural phenomenon where uh, night Passearing is a little bit more popular. So people will, will head out of their houses around like 7 p.m. and hang out and just travel around to other people's houses until 10 p.m. And just, like, telling ghost stories with old men has been really, really interesting. And also, I feel like I've it's been some of the, the closest bonds I've formed mm-hmm. through that has been through those strange conversations that you find through Passearing. Yeah. And oftentimes, I do love I do love Passearing with older community members because they oftentimes have the best stories and in terms of the history of the community, but also just, like, weird experiences that they've had. For sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And all the, I love how here there's still also that aspect of there's a deep knowledge of folklore mm-hmm. around here, especially with the older members of the community. So you talk about like, oh, like I climbed that 
Uh, for example, I'll be like, oh, I climbed that mountain with Julia. And they'll be like, oh, do you know that there is an anteater there and that lives there? And if you find an anteater, it will challenge you to a fight. And if you beat it, you earn 10 years to your life. Is this true? Yeah, that, that is true. <laughs> <laughs> I recently... The cerro? The, yeah. Oh, my goodness. They told me that there's an anteater there that if you if you beat it in a fight, it has to be a fist fight. No weapons. They're very specific about the rules of the fight. Funny, it's like it's like a boxing match. Yeah. yeah, fair play. Uh, if you beat it in an honest match, you will win ten years to your life. And they also said, city the like Cerro City Grande has a giant snake that lives at the top. Wow. Which I said, I mean, I've been up there once. You've been up there a couple times. Right? A handful times, yeah. It's weird. Never seen a snake up there, but they assured me that I just lucked out. Well, we got to get back up there. Yeah, we got to track this guy down. Feel it out before we, uh, yeah, don't climb that cerro anymore. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you come from Massachusetts, have the, your family there, you go to D.C., completely different experience. You come to here, which, in Panama, where it, in some ways it resembles uh, your life back home, but in many ways it doesn't. Mm-hmm. How are you going to bring back aspects of this experience that you've had here back to your small hometown of Massachusetts where your roots are ultimately settled. What, what kind of cultural things in Panama are you hoping to, to transfer back to your family? I guess just thinking about the way that people interact with each other here, I think that we were just talking about passearing is, is a good kind of segue, but I think that the time that people always make for each other um, I feel like their relationships with people and the energy they invest in people, whether they be family or just neighbors or community members, that is always the most important part of their day, I feel like. Um, and while I love my family and I, and I love that I was able to spend so much time with them growing up, I was never really aware of that. And I think, I hope that I'm able to devote the same, um, the same kind of genuine attentiveness to people, um, back home, especially family members that I've received here and witnessed here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like that's a really, that's a beautiful thing when you're like, actually that like human connection. Absolutely. Yeah. That they always, always have time for. Yeah. And I think also like there's some kind of like just like little things that, that initially either confused me uh, or maybe even frustrated me a little bit coming down here that now I've come to recognize as like little uh, acts of, kindness Mm -hmm. uh that they showed a family member like i i always was a little confounded by the fact that uh if for example if two brothers or two sisters are talking and one of them is talking about their uncle rather than saying like have you seen our uncle they'll say have you seen my uncle like like tío. yeah which is kind of initially i was like why are they so possessive about that like it's also that other person's uncle why don't you just Uh say nuestro tío yeah but now I see it kind of as a form of like, oh, it's like cariño. It's like them being, being... It's like affectionate. Yeah, affectionate. Yeah. Exactly. Being like, oh, like I love my uncle and it's my uncle. Yeah. And like a little like selfish, possessive, but in like that cute, affectionate way. And I'm, I'm still struck by that, that phrase exactly. Mm-hmm. I was with a, talking to a, a neighbor earlier today and he's in his 50s, but he still refers to such and such man as mi tío. Uh-huh. And it's, it seems like a very kind of childish thing, but it's, yeah, it's just... It's affectionate. It's that family bond. That, yeah. Absolutely. And I also just, I, I just love that in so many of the communities here, because there are well-established families. Uh, 
and there's often like intermingling between the families. Oh, yeah. Often the majority of the people within our communities are in one way or another related to everyone else in the community. Yeah. So you'll have people call like all their elders Tio or Thea. Right. Uh, because they are, you know, an uncle once removed, it's twice pretty removed. Safe bet. Yeah, it's a pretty safe <laughs> bet. Exactly. Um, but I just love that sign of like connecting respect with family. Yeah. I find that like a very, a very positive way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think like that, definitely that aspect of dedicating time is something that like a very poignant observation, Julia. Um, yeah, I guess my last question for you would be what, I asked Karen this question and it went over well, so I'm going to ask you the same question, which is what has been the time that you've laughed the hardest here in Kent? Oh, man. Um, okay, I don't know if this is the hardest that I've laughed. I've laughed hard on many occasions, but this is the one that just came to my mind because it happened recently. Mm-hmm. This is also going to make me seem really immature, but I'm just going to go for No, it. no, go for it. So I was with, I was at my house, and one of my good friends was visiting with her infant daughter, um, a couple months old, and her son, who's about five years old, and her mother-in-law. So they just, um, they had come over to visit, and we've been talking for a little while. They were passing art. They were passing art. There we go. You know? <laughs> and it's lovely when people pass the art at your house, too. Absolutely. Yeah. I love it. And also, there's, we, we forgot to mention that there's also, like, the, the passe, the passe har, the passe hour harvest, or the passe harvest. Oh, yeah. Which is, you often receive, it's just, um, the, the generosity that you find here in these uh-huh. communities is absolutely incredible. And you'll get food, fruit, things all the time. Yeah. Um, so I always feel, I mean, I try and offer people like coffee and whatever food mm-hmm. I have around, but I always feel outdone. By oh yeah. Food. I have such a huge debt to so many people because <laughs> yeah. of sheer quantity of food that I have received. Absolutely. <laughs> On this particular occasion though, they had actually come over, um, and given me some banana bread, which I had taught them how to make a few weeks previously. Look at that. That's awesome. Which is a great thing to do because then every time people make it, they come and, you know, seek your approval and you just get to taste it. And they, they bring you, like, a big piece and it's it's great. That's quite the devious <laughs> It wasn't intentional. It wasn't intentional. Oh, I'm, just, I'm oh. reaping the rewards. You're now. telling me that you weren't teaching them to make banana bread all the while thinking, like, oh, this is going to come back to me. <laughs> I'm going to get loaves upon loaves of banana bread. Personal gain. No. I No, that's actually really... That's really wonderful that, that they took that skill and are applying yeah. it and they're making it themselves now. Came out great. Evidence impressed. evidence that your work there is successful. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so but anyways, to get back to this interaction. Yeah, sorry, I took you off track. No, it's okay. Um, this is making me laugh already, but I feel silly. So we're admiring this, this like, beautiful young, this, like, she's a couple months old, This the daughter of, of my friend. Mm-hmm. Um, her name is Anna Victoria. And... She's like, you know, half asleep, just kind of being like a precious little infant. Um, and we're just having kind of like a quiet moment, just admiring this baby. And she just like rips ass, like really, <laughs> really loudly. And we were all kind of like startled. And her younger brother who was sitting next to her, who generally is like a really quiet kid. Mm-hmm. He, he like is really not, doesn't speak that much. Um, but he just looks at her with this scowl and was like, quiet, manita, cochina. 
and he <laughs> he was so horrified and so embarrassed for her um and we like her her grandmother and her mother and just burst out laughing partly at what she had done and partly at their son's or their grandson's reaction uh-huh. and it was just this like it was a hilarious scene that i left can imagine very hard yeah <laughs> yeah that's a great story <laughs> and also an absolutely wonderful way to end this interview. That fart humor is universally oh, funny. Fart humor is, oh, I mean, like, yeah, we're, we're constantly trying to connect people mm-hmm. here on a personal basis. And, like, if you can do that through farts, I think there's <laughs> no big, there are no cheap shots down here. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> you you got to use what you got. Yeah. yeah. But we, like, we revisit that moment all the time now. So, like, whenever I see them, I'll be like. And it's just like a oh, funny recurring. Absolutely. Inside <laughs> jokes are the foundation of strong friendships. Yeah. That's my personal belief. For sure. Yeah. I have felt that to be the case in Panama. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Julia. I forgot to say your middle name at the beginning of this podcast. Oh. I'm sorry. Julia Eve Jeez, Sullivan, right? Well done. Nice. Cool. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for coming to La Bonga and letting me interview you. And also thank you so much for being just like an incredible friend. And uh, a really great, also, model. Someone tried uh, to, to try and copy, like, I don't know, shamelessly, as I try <laughs> and be a volunteer. Um, it's been awesome watching you succeed and do incredible things in your community. And I'm glad that I got to be close by to see that happen. Thank you yeah. so much, Dan. Yeah. It's always a pleasure to come to your community and see you here and with your hinting been admiring you from afar as well so <laughs> and i am really glad that you decided to do this podcast i feel like this is a great way to capture an experience that is oftentimes hard to put into words so yeah well we'll hope that some people can be doing something yeah. yeah cool thanks